The next speaker is Dr. Ray Page, and um, he is my uh, knight in shining armor. He's my husband. (laughs) So um, he's an oncologist, and he has a genuine love for patient care. I'm telling you the truth. I know this. Um, And it's coupled with an intellectual genius that makes him an accomplished clinician and researcher. And I can tell you what's really rewarding to me, just on a personal note, is when I meet people in the community who make a special effort to tell me how much they love him and how he saved the life of one of their loved ones, their family members, and um, they just praise him for the, the good care he gives. So that, that means a lot to me. Um, So during COVID, he refused to let fear stand between him and his patients. He continued to see patients in person throughout the pandemic and offering comfort and healing and real touch, human touch, to a population that's vulnerable and sometimes very fearful. Dr. Page? Thank you, Dr. Page. So... so. (laughs) <laughs> so basically, as, as introduced, I'm a cancer doctor, and so I'm going to talk a little bit which, uh, about uh, the impact of COVID and how to manage uh, in, in, in the most vulnerable patients there are, and those are the ones that are immunosuppressed and are cancer patients. And um, so just to give you uh, just a brief summary about me, I've, I've been practicing hematology and oncology for 25 years. I have extensive experience in healthcare policy, and I've written a lot of policy, and particularly cancer-related policy. And I'm osteopathic trained, which basically means that I have a philosophy that, that if you optimize the function of the body, it'll heal itself if you just give it the opportunity. And I also have a, a training with a PhD in pharmacology, so I, I have uh, that level of expertise in just studying drugs and how they work and the mechanisms of action and all those kind of things. I'm actively involved in cancer research, and I've worked with over 80 experimental uh, and investigational cancer drugs. And, uh, and, and in the elements of experience that I have with liposomal drug de- delivery, and I've done, I've done vaccine trials for the treatment of, of uh, cancer patients with cancer vaccines, and I've worked a lot with circulating tumor DNA and, and uh, proteomics and how that can be utilized uh, for the, for the uh, treatment of cancer. Uh, all that kind of overlaps with with the same kind of things that we're experiencing with trying to determine good therapies, uh, therapeutics as well as vaccines for for the uh, uh, for for COVID. So, in that context, you know, when I'm giving drugs and experimental and investigational therapies that can kill people, you know, uh, I'm, I'm hyper vigilant about patient safety and safety on those on those uh, in investigational drugs. And certainly along those lines, that's what ra- raises and piques my antenna about about the safety of, of the therapies that we're offering for COVID. So the first thing I want to emphasize is that COVID, the the virus is very dangerous for people immunosuppressed with cancer. And when we just look at the populations, 30% of cancer patients end up having severe disease as compared to 16% in other patients. And we see that that the overall mortality for cancer patients is upwards of 23% when they get COVID as opposed to 2.3% for the general population. And uh, so early on, 
cancer centers across the United States uh, and, and even in some other countries created a cancer registry and consortium. And basically what they found was is that, you know, if you're a cancer patient and you're generally healthy uh, and you don't have any major comorbidities, if you get the COVID, then, then you do fine. Uh, there's no death or any problems there. But as you start looking at certain risk factors uh, to where if you're male sex, if you're over the age of 75, if you have active cancer and your cancer is progressing uh, or you have a poor performance status, then you can see that the risk of, of one-month mortality and death goes up substantially up to 25%. If you happen to have those characteristics and you come into the ICU and get put on a ventilator, uh, then, then as a cancer patient uh, with those risks, you, you run upwards of an 80 89% chance of, of actually dying from the disease. So that's significant. It's, a, it's significant for cancer patients. So I, I want to emphasize to you also that the cancer centers are the safest place in town. Uh, I was asked to join about 15 other doctors nationally with the American Society of Clinical Oncology, and early on we wrote uh, guidelines to achieve cancer care delivery uh, during this pandemic. And so we created a lot of protocols and pathways to make sure that we made the, the cancer center the safest environment possible for the patients to come. So I want to encourage you that, that we, we uh, with cancer centers all across the United States, have done everything possible to make it in a safe environment for you to see your doctors and carry out your therapy. I think you know this. Without a doubt, our chemo nurses and our ancillary staff, they're the heroes. And uh, these are pictures of my nurses in one of my clinics, and I could tell you that at the time that we were told with erroneous data that there was going to be millions of Americans that were going to die from this, our nurses came up and showed to work every day. And these are nurses that were pregnant. They're intending to get pregnant. They had sick children at home with chronic illnesses. They had their own medical problems and concerns that they were worried about. But they came every day, took care of patients, put their hands on patients, gave them chemotherapy, and they provided hope for our cancer patients. And so those are our heroes. There's a great article that just came out uh, in Scientific American called The COVID Cancer Effect. It's a pretty easy read, but it just shows the impact over the last couple of years of how uh, surgeries and cancer screening and, and all has been put on hold uh, because as we were initially looking just to, to protect PPE and try to get protective gear, that was an issue. But we've even had further limitations with surges uh, recently. And, and studies have shown that just the, the, there's significant detrimental effect by not getting your appropriate cancer screening. And even for just breast cancer and colon cancer, there's expected to be an extra 10,000 deaths uh, associated with just not being able to get your appropriate cancer screening. So I just want to encourage you guys to get back online with your routine cancer screening. It's safe, and it's important for you to try to get your cancers found early through mammogram and colonoscopy and those, those things, because I'd much rather you find your cancer early get a, and get it taken care of and be cured without having more morbid surgery and having to get chemotherapy through me. So get your, your screening done. I want you to, uh, as you go get your screening, get diagnostic imaging, I want you to understand that vaccines cause false positives in the diagnostic cancer imaging. And so what we found with the initial studies, you know, with the Pfizer study and all, that, that adenopathy is very common. Uh, and oftentimes if you get an injection in the left arm, you'll get a lot of reactive lymphadenopathy, typically on that side of the injection. But, uh, uh, but we can find that these false positives test uh, they can occur in screening, staging, restaging, response evaluation, surveillance, 
And, and early on, it, it potentially put patients at potential detriment uh, because, because we, were, we were getting these, these changes that we didn't know how to explain or answer. Uh, but but uh, through guidelines, and it's been studied, uh, it, it's now recommended that you know, your imaging should be scheduled before your, your first vaccination or at least six weeks after uh, the final vaccination whenever possible. But definitely, if you're getting imaging done, you need to let your doctors know uh, at the imaging center that, uh, what your vaccination status is and if you had gotten a recent vaccination or not, because that gives them great intuition when they're looking at, at lymph nodes, whether these might be reactive to the vaccination or not. So, um, but again, this can, without knowing that, that can actually cause detriment and have us go down a rabbit hole chasing things that aren't real. So just to briefly touch on vaccination cancer uh, and, and cancer patients and the efficacy of that. So in general, in, in my practice and across the nation, 90% uh, of cancer patients through the decision uh, shared with their doctors, they're, they're vaccinated, they're fully vaccinated. And most of the cancer patients actually got vaccinated and fully vaccinated early, you know, January, February, March, April. And so, so there's not as much debate or discussion about, you know, whether or not to get your initial of vaccinations because everybody kind of already has it that are in that high-risk group with cancer and have cancer. But, um, but, the, but, but the thing that we've seen that's been discussed is, is, that, is that despite being fully vaccinated, we're seeing immunity wane, and we're seeing people uh, and, and cancer patients that are getting breakthrough infections. We're seeing it more and more commonly uh, in, the, in, in, in the most recent months. And that, those are still resulting in hospitalizations and deaths. And uh, so we'll talk a little bit about what the duration of the immunity is in, in, in cancer patients and just whether there's any role for additional doses or booster vaccinations. And so there's a lot of data out there in cancer, but I'm just giving you a four example. When we look at chronic lymphocytic leukemia, which is a blood cancer, uh, there's 167 patients studied, and only 39% of those uh, developed the, the antibody response that would be desired after two doses of vaccine. When we looked at those CLL patients that were on active treatment, that percentage went down to 17%. Those that were in remission, you got remission rates that were higher, uh, or, or antibody rates that were higher at 79%. We also see that, depending on your therapy that you have, that there's no response in patients that receive anti-CD20 antibodies. And this is drugs like Rituxan, which that's an that's a antibody therapy that we give like water uh, to people with, with uh, certain hematologic malignancies that, that are B-cell malignancies, and so we give that a lot. So a lot of folks that are on these immunosuppressive drugs and, and, and like Rituxan, we don't see any antibody response at all. And there's precedent to this, because when we looked at this data that uh, in flu, we saw the same thing. We saw that uh, there was a study that showed that with the flu vaccine, that there was a 0% seroconversion rate uh, with, with the uh, flu patients with the flu vaccine. So the flu vaccine was ineffective in those folks. Yet what was the conclusion of the study? Take your flu vaccine. Okay, <laughs> go figure. So when we look at post-vaccine antibodies, uh, there's a decay. Dr. Fauci has, has admitted this uh, himself just in, in recent days that we are seeing a, a, a decay in, in the antibody levels and the immunity levels. And for our, immune, our patients that are immunosuppressed, you know, our cancer patients and, and dialysis patients and post-transplant patients, they, they're, they're the worst with this. And so when it's, when it's modeled, we can see a very predictable fall-off on, on that antibody rate, but, but more, more so clinically, we are seeing people fully vaccinated that are getting breakthroughs, hospitalizations, and death. So let me just talk a little bit about safety. Uh, 
and, and it's been covered very well with the previous two speakers, but, you know, we hear everywhere from everybody, vaccines are safe and effective, safe and effective, safe and effective, safe and effective, until they're not, okay, because it's not entirely true. And so, granted, with my cancer patients uh, that, that, that I have, it, it, they all have adverse events. Um, so when you have cancer, a lot of bad things happen. You can have blood clots and all kinds of stuff, uh, and all kinds of bad things can happen, and it can be related to your therapy also. So sometimes it's kind of hard to determine, determine a causal relationship on the impact of, of vaccines and if the serious adverse events in cancer patients was related to the vaccine or whether it's related to the cancer or whether it's related to the therapy. Sometimes those things are hard to sort out. But as a cancer doctor, there's sometimes things that should give you pause, that make you step back and think, well, is this really right? And, th and that's clotting, particularly clotting in unusual locations. You know, people most commonly get clots in their legs and then it travels to their lungs. But when you start seeing blood clots that are in the splenic artery and the hepatic artery and the ovarian artery and, and in the veins and, and, uh, and, and clotting in the cerebral veins and those kind of things, it's like, well, th this isn't normal. This is not what you normally see. That should give you pause. You got to think about bleeding also. When people uh, are getting the vaccines and all of a sudden their platelets just disappear because they have an immune reaction going on that destroys their platelets. And as mentioned earlier, you got to think about menstrual bleeding. You know, postmenopausal menstrual bleeding that occurs after vaccination. Got to think about these unusual neurological events, TIAs, strokes, uh, Bell's palsies, exacerbation of neuropathies, cardiovascular events, strokes, heart attacks, aneurysms. Uh, I asked Dr. McCullough about this. You know, I've seen a couple of patients that they've had stable abdominal aortic aneurysms for years, and I've been seeing them on routine scans following their cancer, and then all of a sudden they get their, their booster and their, their abdominal aortic aneurysm has exploded to eight and a half centimeters, and now I'm sending them for emergency surgery, and it's like, I'm not sure if there's a causal relationship there, but it's something I've never seen before, and, I th and we know that these spike proteins cause vascular injury and inflammation to where I think you can potentially get these kinds of things going on. I've also seen arterial dissections in unusual places, in un unusual locations, which I've just never seen before, which raises the question also. We've talked about enlarging lymph nodes that occur, and we wonder about the possibility of cancer accelerations. You know, I've seen a couple of patients with cancers that are kind of immunologically regulated that have kind of exploded. Now, it's hard to tell whether that's related to the vaccine or if it's just, you know, timing, and it just happened. But it, it, these things should give you pause. You've seen uh, the red box chart already, but I just want you to realize, you know, on your vaccine card, there's a communication for you to report to the, to the CDC if you have experienced a serious adverse event. Um, but does anybody have a problem with these numbers? You know, I, I can tell you, you know, conducting clinical trials with, with cancer research drugs that are experimental, if you saw these kind of reports that were are one one-thousandth of this, even one-ten-thousandth of this, the studies with those experimental drugs would be shut down. They would be put on hold and stopped, okay? Yet, what are we doing? We're expanding it into children, okay? So, so um, and, you know, one of the other numbers are 25,000 people with permanent disability, you know? So you, you talk about acute effects that maybe you can get over, but when you have, you know, vaccine events that are causing permanent disability, that's a problem. And this was shown to you also. Do you have a problem with these slides? And, uh, and, and so the second slide on the bottom there is that the proximity of death uh, occurs within 48 hours within the majority of these people. And that's a serious problem. Uh, that, that directs more to a causal relationship of something bad going on when you're in, uh, manufacturing spike protein in your body. And does this give you any 
problem also. This is the European data, data that shows over 1.1 million reported adverse event cases with 29,000 deaths. So all these are raised concerns. As a hematologist and oncologist, you know, we see clotting issues, and, uh, and so we see clinical features uh, that, that has uh, vaccine-induced immune thrombocytopenia thrombosis. So your platelets drop, and you develop blood clots. So you can bleed and clot at the same time. It's not a good situation. It can be deadly. And even though this is uncommon and rare, it, it, it is a diagnosis code uh, that, that is given as a diagnosis now, and it's a black box warning for the J&J vaccine. So these are, these are you know, serious incidences that occur, and even though it's not common, it's, it's real and significant. And so along those lines, as, as mentioned previously, there's numerous countries that are cutting back on the use of their, their vaccinations. Um, and so most recently, Germany and France just have suspended the Moderna vaccination for people under 30 because of myocarditis issues and, and those kind of things. So, um, so we, we have other countries that are, that are taking pause and cutting back and, and, and trying to, to find the best way to, to, to use this vaccination. But, we're, you know, we have countries that are cutting back on the vaccinations, yet in the United States we're expanding it into our children. So go figure. So the question, uh, whether this can cause cancer or not, and Dr. Cole, uh, as a pathologist, has seen a, a lot of signals in, in his, his practice uh, looking at the pathologic features. We know that viruses can cause cancer, you know, the Epstein-Barr, herpes virus, HIV, uh, human papillomavirus, and we even have some vaccines that can potentially uh, mitigate some of that. But uh, there's, there's potential laboratory signals that are suggesting that there's interactions with these spike proteins with certain cancer genes which has the possibility to cause or accelerate cancer. Now, I haven't seen that clinically yet, and I haven't seen a lot of clinical data with that yet, but I think we need to really keep our eyes open uh, as, as something that could be a concern there. Uh, because we know that the, this mRNA gene therapy and the vector vaccines, um, if you're perpetually giving them booster after booster after booster, you're creating a chronic inflammatory state. And we know that chronic inflammatory states can trigger cells to transform into cancer. So I'm not a real fan of perpetual boosters uh, because I think it, it puts you at a higher risk of, of putting uh, people at risk of cancer. Now, is there any data to support or refute this? At this point in time, no, but time will tell. But I can tell you one fact, and that is when that vaccine is in the body, it's irreversible, and you've crossed the Rubicon. And as Dr. Cole discussed, you know, spike protein causes morbidity and mortality, and as we know, this is a genetically engineered gain-of-function protein that damages cells. And uh, but whether it's by natural infection or vaccination, normal tissues get damaged. So particularly after achieving natural immunity, why would we want to repeatedly expose our bodies to more spike protein with additional doses or booster vaccines? You know, just naturally, when you get a natural infection, you get, you get a, a small bolus of, of the virus, and the virus itself is your antigen-presenting cell. And when your body sees that, it sees it and, and develops antibodies against the whole enchilada. And, uh, and so you, you get robust uh, antibody response against, uh, against that. And it's small, and, and it can be taken care of by, by having the natural infection, as opposed to the vaccination, which is given as a bolus that, uh, that creates high burden to where it, it goes to your cells, and it, and it tells your cells 
uh, to be the antigen-presenting cell. So now instead of having the virus be the antigen-presenting cell, it's your normal cells that are the antigen-presenting cells making those spike proteins, and then you develop uh, immune responses that go against your normal tissue, therefore causing disease and morbidity and clots and all the things that we see. And, uh, and we know that those spike proteins are hanging around in the body for at least 15 months. So boosters after naturally acquired immunity, you know, persons that are naturally acquired with immunity uh, against COVID-19, they're, they're at greater risk of having harm with vaccination. So the risk of hospitalization is, is, is greater. Vaccination, vaccinated persons who recover from the infection really get negligible or no benefit uh, and even possible harms from this. And there's at least six studies that support uh, these statements. So as far as timing of vaccination, don't get the vaccination in proximity to your chemotherapy treatments. It just gives you a double whammy of side effects. And I can't tell you how many patients I've had uh, over the past year or so, the, the past year that has come to my office and, and they said, well, well, doc, I got my vaccination yesterday and I'm ready for, for chemo today, but I'm having fevers and I got headaches and I feel like crap, you know, and it's like, well, you're not getting chemo today, you know. So if you feel so compelled to get a vaccination, you need to coordinate that with your chemotherapy. But I want to tell you also that if you feel compelled to get a, a a vaccination, you should consider taking drugs to help mitigate some of those toxicities, you know, vitamin D, vitamin C, NAC, you know, we, and a lot of these drugs we give, you know, off-label uh, for treatment of cancer-related toxicities, but that includes keratin, alpha-lipoic acid to help protect your nerves, uh, steroids, and aspirin. And, and uh, you know, a lot of people that are elderly tend to be on aspirin or anticoagulants for one reason or another. I'll, I'll say in general that that the folks that are on anticoagulations maybe have had a serendipity of, of helping to prevent more clotting events from the spike protein by virtue of being on an anticoagulant. So I, I worry a lot that our U.S. Preventative Service Task Force just came out with recommendations that people don't need to take preventative aspirin anymore to protect their heart, you know. Uh, by the way, you know, the people that serve on that, that committee, uh, there's a pediatrician on there, an OB-GYN, you know, a statistician. I don't, I don't remember seeing any cardiologist or cardiovascular guys or clotting guys, Dr. McCullough types uh, on that committee making those decisions. But uh, I, I worry that if people decide to follow those recommendations and not take, you know, routine anticoagulation, that you're actually going to see more clotting events from, from vaccinations and boosters is my, my suspicion there. So there's a study that came out that basically shows, and we've seen this clinically, uh, that, that COVID cases are not decreasing even though higher populations of people are being vaccinated. And so the conclusion of this study was is that the sole reliance on vaccination as a primary strategy to mitigate COVID-19 and its adverse consequences needs to be re-examined. And they recommend that other pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic interventions need to be put in place. So that, that leads us to early treatment uh, of, of, of the COVID-19. And so, so in general, if you develop COVID-like symptoms, it's too late at that time, and it's entirely ineffective to go get a vaccination at that time. And I think that happens a lot because I see a lot of folks, and, and if you look at the data in the literature, there are a lot of people that are, not, that are, quote, not fully vaccinated, that they got a vaccination, and three days later, they're in the hospital with symptoms and problems. And I think there's, there's folks that, that are going, oh, my gosh, I think I'm coming down with COVID symptoms, get a vaccine. Well, that's totally, in fact, ineffective. And, in fact, I'll, I'll argue that that vaccine actually makes things worse 
because you're getting the infection from the virus, and then you're putting a bolus of, of spike protein from the, from the injection on top of that. So you're really doing people harm, and people are doing harm if they think that they're sick and they're taking a vaccination. But if you develop COVID-like like symptoms as a cancer patient, do not tarry. Uh, if you test positive, you need to demand monoclonal antibody infusions with Regeneron and get it immediately. The sooner, the better. And further, if you have a high-risk exposure as a cancer patient, so your spouse or a family member that you spend a lot of time face-to-face -face with, then it's important for you to demand to get the Regeneron infusion as a preventative, okay? And we know that there's an 84% response, and a lot of that response is durable for up to eight months. Uh, in my opinion, the, the monoclonal antibody uh, is far superior to the vaccination. So as far as early treatment, you need to make a treatment plan with your doctor in advance, okay? And if your doctor does not do COVID early treatment, then get them to get you to a referral to somebody that does. And if you don't have anybody in your community that can do that, they didn't show up very well, but there's, there's websites that you can get, uh, uh, you know, web-based doctors that can get you the therapy that you need. Dr. Vladimir Zelenko, who did the, uh, was the pioneer in doing the original multi-agent treatment uh, for, for uh, COVID patients in New York when this first came about, I thought he had a very interesting statement. Uh, he, he said the two strongest variables in your ability to survive COVID are the country where you live in and who your doctor is. And uh, so, so in that context, and this was mentioned earlier, I think, by Dr. Artis, and uh, uh, so, so this is graphical representation of what it says. Uh, what he said is that the cumulative confirmed COVID-19 deaths in the world, we're number one. We are the worst country in the world. You live in the most dangerous country in the world of getting COVID virus. So when you see the United States at the top there, I will tell you that that is a reflection of catastrophic policy problems with our healthcare leadership. And, and so, so that means we are doing something drastically wrong. And, and so, so those guys, and we know who, who they all are from the top to the bottom, you know, those guys and those agencies, all those three, three letter agencies uh, that, are, that are involved with this and on those committees, they need to be terminated, you know. And, and the problem is, is those policies get translated into, into doctors that are blindly following these policies, often, oftentimes because they're employed by big companies that tell them what to do. But, but I can tell you also that, that, that doctors are forced um, to, to do things um, that, that, are, that follow a protocol or a pathway that is not practicing real medicine uh, of managing the patients. So... So you got to find uh, a doctor uh, that will manage your COVID appropriately. So in summary, I want to emphasize that there's no shame in taking the vaccine, but there's no shame in not taking the vaccine. A personal, uh, this should be a personal educated decision between the doctor and the patient and not between the government and the patient. Okay. But I... But I will say that there, there is shame on our government administration and medical societies for endorsing mandates on all people. We are all individuals. And I can tell you there's a big difference between a 75-year-old man that's immunosuppressed on therapy for multiple myeloma and a 10-year-old girl. You have to make individual decisions on what's best for those folks. Okay? So shame on vaccinating our children 
because they're not vulnerable. You know, there, there's no risk on pharma. There, there, pharma takes no risk on this. Pfizer has no risk. We're putting all the risk on our children. Shame on requiring vaccinations for employment, okay? This is impacting people's livelihoods. When you, when, you take people, when you take people out of their jobs, they lose their insurance. They then lose access to health care for them, their family, their children. And, and the next thing you know, you have flipped them in, in all those social determinants of health. You have flipped them into all the, uh, to check all the boxes that put them at high risk of having adverse health outcomes because you have terminated their employment. Uh, so shame on them. Shame on the numerous, numerous punitive actions that limit our participation in society. It's just, it's unbelievable. You know, they started off with giving us carrots. You know, oh, go get the vaccination and you'll get a free taco and get a gift card and we'll put you in a raffle and all those kind of things. And we knew that they, they found out that people were too smart, you know, for the, for the carrots. And uh, so now they're throwing the stick at us. And, uh, and so, so people are having punitive actions to where, you know, you, you can't dine inside. You can't go to a restaurant. You can't go to, to a, a meeting and so forth. And uh, are you running me off the stage? Shame on you. So, so, I'm almost done. One more slide after this. Shame on not acknowledging acquired natural immunity. You know, our our seat. Our CDC just recently published that they believe that there's 150 million Americans that are naturally immune. Okay? Those people should be able to freely function in society and do whatever they want. Okay? And, uh, and so shame on, on the policymakers on that. And then shame on not endorsing early therapeutics. You know? If you want to know why we've had a, hundreds of thousands of deaths and why we could have reduced that by 85% if we would have done early aggressive treatment with, with the McCullough regimen and other regimens, you know, we, we have not done well at all offering early therapeutics for our patients. So too many unnecessary COVID deaths have occurred in our cancer patients. And I can tell you from, as an oncologist that there's been a catastrophic failure on our oncologists to offer multi-drug early therapeutics. And of all people, you know, always oncologists have been fearless about giving novel therapies and treatments that are, that are you know, multi-agent, aggressive, toxic therapies. And we've always had the guts to give all kinds of therapies for the treatment of cancer. But, but in general, if you got... COVID, you know, the cancer centers, the cancer doctors, oh, don't, don't set foot in our cancer center. Go to the urgent care. Go see your, go see your primary care. And, you know, we're not going to manage you or, or treat you with, with uh, good early interventions. Just go elsewhere. And if, if your lips turn blue, go to the hospital, and then we'll manage you from there. So, um, so it, you know... To, to emphasize, early treatment requires multi-drug therapy, just like we do in, in cancer. Single-agent chemotherapy doesn't often work, but if you combine multiple drugs together, they work better. That holds true for the treatment of COVID also. And um, so 
we're, we're, we're all putting our eggs in one basket, but without a doubt, the vaccine is not the panacea. We have to come up with other solutions to replace the vaccine. You can get over-the-counter pharmacy uh, with the drugs listed there. And then there's prescription drugs that can be considered also, and that should be a shared decision with you and your physician. And those include combinations of all the drugs that you listed below. And we have doctors that are going to give uh, expert uh, discussion about uh, those drugs. But, but just in general, in, in, in conclusion, you know, as an N1, as an individual, as you encounter and come across and you get COVID, you're going to have one of two outcomes. You're either going to have a good outcome or you're going to have a bad outcome, okay? And you have one chance of, of that. And if you're going to get a good outcome and give you the best statistical chance possible, you need to throw the kitchen sink at this and do everything possible. And you need to have early therapy, monoclonal antibody therapy, and so forth to try to keep you out of the hospitals and prevent death. Thank you.